All right. Here we go. We're going to be in Ephesians today. Um, We have been in a series called The Struggle is Real. If you're new, we've been talking about the three enemies of the soul. As our church fathers throughout the millennia have talked about it, the flesh, the world, and the devil. We are finishing um, seven weeks on the devil. So, well done, church. You, uh, you put up with it. Um, and then next week, we start with the flesh for two weeks and then the world for two weeks. So don't want to miss those. Um, I'm excited for those. Um, but I'm going to take you a little, on a little journey back here a few decades to the 1980s. Um, I was a product of the 80s. I'm going to throw up 1980s. No, no, not that one. That one. So that's me on the right. That's my brother, Doug, on the left. Did you guys know I had a brother? Yeah. I don't talk about him much, but I love him. He lives in Texas. It's my brother, Doug, on the left. That's me on the right. Um, That's about 1980. And then fast forward to 1989, I stretched out a bit. Yeah. And what I want you to notice is the beginnings of a mullet. So I was affected also by culture. Uh, 1989 was a great time to grow a mullet. And uh, okay, we're done with that. The reason why I put those up there is that um, thinking back on my childhood, um, there was something actually, if you look back in history, the history of the church, In the 1980s, there was something we look back on and call the satanic panic. Ever heard of this? Any of you around in the 80s? Okay. The satanic panic. What is the satanic panic? Well, I'm going to share with you about it. Let's go back a little earlier. End of the 60s was the Manson murders. um, Very occultish. Um, 1971... The book, The Exorcist, was written, 1973. The movie, The Exorcist, uh, was actually um, a cultural phenomenon. It actually had a huge impact on culture. At the same year, Anton LaVey wrote what? The Satanic Bible. So you fast forward a few years. There's all of this um, occult talk and Satanic worship talk and And it began to affect not only uh, culture, but it began to affect the church. It began to affect local churches, Christian schools. There was a a fear of satanic influence. Um, I was not allowed to watch the Smurfs. Um, The Smurfs because um, there's a lot of weird things with the Smurfs, but one of them is... Um, there's a character called Gargamel and his cat Azriel, and um, it was thought that they were demonic and whatever. Um, and then there's other things happening at the time. Dungeons and Dragons, anybody? Uh, comes about in this time, and I wasn't allowed to play that, but uh, just a little confession, mom and dad, they're here. Um, I used to sneak up the street to this Mormon kid's house, and we used to play D&D. Yeah. 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 It's coming out. Confession. Okay. Um, and I'm okay. Um, 
Uh, yeah, it's debatable. It is debatable. A um, couple other things happening. There's a big kind of Halloween fear. Um, and if you trick-or-treated, you know, um, someone was going to snatch you and sacrifice you or something. Um, but no, but there was just, there was a fear out there that there was like the holiday was going to pull you into something. Um, I'm not making fun of that. I'm just telling you what, what was happening at the time. And then the other thing that was happening had to do with music and music having an influence and not just um, an influence at the beginnings of, you know, post Led Zeppelin, um, hit into the more of the hard rock and metal scene, Slayer, Iron Maiden, you know, all the good stuff. And, um, and there was this fear that if you listen to this music that you would um, be into the occult. And um, there was some VHS videos out there with some Christian teachers and they were doing the whole backmasking thing, um, which is funny because they've actually uh, played Christian music backwards and they've found similar, you know, anyhow. So um, th- the whole point, I'm not ripping on it. I just wanted to say that the paranoia that kind of came in at the time actually led to two disastrous consequences. The first one was kind of a, um, a burgeoning fundamentalism, okay? So a fundamentalism meaning there was this low and very apprehensive view of art in our world and creativity in our world, which what the Christian world did is we said no to anything that was not inherently labeled Christian, and we said we have to create a Christian alternative for it. So Christian music, and uh, we were wearing Christian T-shirts, and uh, we were doing all these things in response to whatever the art and creativity of the culture did, right? So there was Christian board games where you would roll the dice, and there were Christian cartoons, and there were Christian music, and there was everything had to have a, an opposite effect, you know? And then we had these culture wars now, you know, about holiday greetings and things like that. Um, you could have a Christmas tree, but you couldn't have a jack-o'-lantern, which is funny because they both have pagan influence, right? They both come from pagan, you know, anyhow. So, so there was this, the, the two disastrous consequences, one was kind of this fundamentalism, like we have to keep ourselves insulated from everything. And the other consequence, remember we talk about pendulums a lot around here, the other consequence was this apathy and this um, basically a, a distrust or a disbelief in anything supernatural. Okay? So which is in many ways where we find ourselves as a church, as the church now, that we don't see evil that we don't see a personified evil in the world. Um, for instance, go to a, any deconstructionist podcast about Christianity. For instance, the Liturgist podcast. If you go to the Liturgist podcast, you'll basically hear there's no such thing as an actual personified evil, just good and bad vibes. So that's where we're at. Welcome to church, if you're new. Jesus and Paul clearly teach about a personified evil being. And in 
Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he gets into what it looks like on a ground level, on on a very day-to-day basis, what it looks like to fight the devil, okay? So we're going to get into this a bit. It's a very dense passage, but we're not going to go word by word and really unpack everything. We're going to kind of get the major, major thrust. So verse 17 of Ephesians chapter something. Where are we at? There it is. Thank you, everybody. It's audience participation today. Um, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, Paul says, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life, God, the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Um, Okay, let's stop there. Paul is trying to juxtapose a a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And he mentions Gentiles, and most scholars believe what he he means by that. There's a couple different ways to to, unpack this. He's basically, basically saying, don't live like those who do not know or follow Jesus. And um, in Ephesus at the time, uh, there were many different versions of gods that you could follow. You could follow Apollos. You could follow Epaphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of beauty and fertility and sexuality. You could uh, uh, give sacrifice to Poseidon if you were going to take a trip by sea or by boat. Um, you would take it by boat over the sea. <laughs> Idiot. Um, <laughs> then if you needed medical attention, you had a, an ill child or whatever, you would probably do a, uh, a sacrifice to Asclepius which was the goddess of medicine, a Greek gods, Roman gods, a pantheon of thriving options in Ephesus. Now, the thing is, the more gods you worshipped, the safer you were, okay? Um, I know this is kind of recap for many, but um, you would actually, um, the gods were very cool with the fact that you went to Asclepius and then Poseidon and Apollos and different things for different things. Um, that's what they were uh, hoping that you would, you would use the whole um, uh, menu, uh, if you will, of gods. Listen to what Larry Hurtado says. It's a great book called Destroyer of the Gods. He says, there was a virtual cafeteria of Roman era deities from the many nations And in this cafeteria, you did not have to restrict yourself to any one or any number of gods. Indeed, such an an exclusivity was deemed utterly bizarre. So if you were an Ephesian, you would partake of any known number of gods to get through life and to, to do well in life. Now, Paul is drawing people out of that, okay? He's pointing them to Jesus who comes as the incarnate, true and living God. That's what, what Paul is separating. He's like, there's this whole pantheon of Roman deities and he's drawing people away from that into the exclusive worship of the one true creator God. And we've talked in the last number of weeks about how um, 
Scripture is very clear that there are many Elohim. And we've been wrestling with that, um, that idea um, as modern Christians. But this group of Christians in Ephesus felt the pull, felt the, 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 the struggle, okay, to pull themselves away from the worship of all these other deities, right? Like, I'm taking a trip, but I follow Jesus. But I've always, it always has worked to give a sacrifice to Poseidon. It's always practically worked. It's always given me some sort of an emotional security and a peace of mind to give this sacrifice to Poseidon. But now I'm a follower of Jesus, right? What do I do? This pull to be like everyone else and not to fight the pull, right? And not to fight like what everybody else is doing. And there's a lot in here for us. What it means in faith and practice in a culture that was radically out of step with Jesus. And what does it mean to allow the teachings of Jesus to have their full effect on our lives? And Larry Hurtado, he, he has another quote here I want to use here. It says, in, in its Roman era setting, for example, Christianity was so different that critics of the time referred to it as a superstition, meaning a bogus or dangerous religion. More and more, I feel like this is becoming how our world sees following Jesus. Because there are many options for us today. There are many options that the the secular worldview actually offers us, okay? Um, And ways to fix our lives and ways to secure our lives and, and ways for us to just, in a sense, go along with how things are. And so what what Paul's saying is that their hearts are stagnated, their hearts are hard, and 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 that's not what I want for you. That's not what Jesus has for you. He goes on in verse 20. He says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And we're going to talk about deceitful desires a little bit more next week. To to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul's saying you have these old ideas, this old way you used to live. And you need to set them aside. You need to let them die. And you have this new mental map, and and the new mental map and the old mental map cannot coexist. They cannot operate in the same way, in the same uh, space and time. Uh, One author said that basic conversion must be followed by daily conversion. This idea that you and I, uh, once we turned and followed Christ, and that's great, and that's a phenomenal date, and we celebrate that, and we remember that, and, um, but it doesn't stop there. It continues with daily conversion, meaning there's, there's, our old mental maps keep coming into our mind. They keep coming up in our lives. 
Um, the old ways, you know, I just think of these, these Ephesians, like this old way of, of, oh, my son, my daughter is sick. I need to go present an offering to Asclepius. And just this pull that, that out of fear or out of or whatever that's happening in our lives would pull us back into a way of living that God does not want for us. Meaning this, that along the changing landscape of your life, in your personhood, you are constantly finding, you and I are both constantly finding in us things that are out of sync with Jesus. Over and over and over again. Now, now it might come up like in, in something that happens in your life that you weren't expecting and you find this place in your life that is out of sync with Jesus. And it's about this idea of over a lifetime, of following Jesus, persistently building out the new self, right? The new self that Jesus has on offer for us. Dallas Willard says this, spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. So, the more we move into Christ-likeness, the more we exchange okay, our mental maps and, and, and our, our ideas and our images for his. It's this idea you see in Scripture all the time. In the New Testament, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Like continue to move this direction. Continue to wrestle with the old mental maps and the ones that God wants you to have. Um, and, and we read that, that God continues to work in us, continues to build out in us until the day of Christ. So look at verse 25. We'll continue with this as we get to the, the big stuff. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Roman deity worship uh, was sacrificial and it was ceremonial. But it did not require any change in behavior. So, when you needed something, you went and sacrificed. But it didn't ask you to become different. It didn't ask you to, for transformation. It didn't, it didn't beg transformation in your life. Paul is saying something absolutely different here for the follower of Jesus. And he's asking us to constantly be differentiating between truth and lies. Every single day, this is a constant thing. You and I are at the mercies of our emotions. Uh, we are vulnerable to our changing feelings and our changing needs and our changing desires. And, and what Paul is saying here is there's something going on that God wants to transform us into this new self and then we need to be paying attention to the truth and the lies. Remember that all the satanic panic stuff I talked about at the beginning, none of that shows up in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, that's when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, your, your father is the father of lies. Remember he tells them that their father's the devil, which is <laughs> intense, but um, I mean, whatever. Uh, and and, and he's, he doesn't mention any of this other stuff. What he mentions is that his native tongue is lies. 
His native tongue, that is his language, is lies. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Okay, everybody. Uh, But must work, do something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander. Stop brawling, you guys. Along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Now, this is a dense passage. There's a lot here. We could talk about anger. We could talk about brawling. We could talk about slander. We could talk about a lot of different things in here. Uh, But his main kind of chunks are anger and stealing and unwholesome talk. Okay? And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, let's boil this down to something a little bit more easy. Anger begins in our hearts. It begins internally. It begins, we feel like we've been wronged, someone's been holding back from us, whatever. So anger begins with our hearts. Um, and then he moves on with something we actually do with our hands. We take. So hearts, hands, and then our mouths. Unwholesome talk, okay? So let's just focus on those, those, those three things. Uh, what we experience with our hearts, with our hands, and with our mouths. How we do life with our hearts and our hands and our mouths. And, and, and the, the passage that is the hinge of all of it, if you were to like diagram it all nerdy like a biblical scholar, the, the hinge of the whole passage is do not give the devil a foothold. That is the hinge of the whole thing. That with our hearts and our hands and our mouths, we actually have potential footholds for exploitation, meaning windows of influence into our lives. With the things that we harbor in our hearts, the actions we do with our hands, and the words we say with our mouth. And the question is, why conclude these seven weeks of teaching on the devil with this passage. My answer would be this. Our apprenticeship of Jesus means that we begin to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus enabled by the Holy Spirit. Meaning, if we are apprenticing Jesus, what that means is that we begin to orient our lives around three things. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And it also means that a belief in an active acknowledgement in a real autonomous being and spiritual beings comes with following Jesus. So when we see evil, we recognize it, as either directly or indirectly connected to evil in the spiritual realm. And this goes back a number of teachings. So if you've been here for a while, you've been keeping up. And that that evil actually has to do with things outside of us and within us. That we can choose to participate with evil with our hearts, with our hands, with our mouths. 
Now, this is so important because when Paul says the command is do not give the the devil a foothold, we need to remind ourselves of what the devil's strategy is. I'm going to throw it back up here. The devil's strategy is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. We are going to be talking about the desires part and the sinful, sinful society part in the next few weeks. But here's the thing that's really important. The devil will not coerce by force, but look for windows of influence. And here's how he does it. Where are the places that you are wounded? Where are the places that you are anxious? Where are the places you are insecure? Where are the places that you are developing in secret? These are thought patterns. These are behavior patterns. These are our speech patterns. These are things that that all come from a place of, of woundedness or anxiety or insecurity. So, for instance... The devil, the devil cannot, as a personified human being, as an autonomous, you know, spiritual being, cannot um, force you to objectify another human being in lust, but can play to a disordered desire in you or a wounding or an insecurity in you. The devil cannot force you to take another drink and another drink and another drink, but can play on your moods and your, um, your routines and your anxiety. Cannot force you to talk behind someone's back and share your opinion about them, but can play on your insecurities and your wounding and your anger with that person. So we give things, this is really important, we give things permission with our habits and our patterns. The things we think about, the things we do, and the things we say are given permission with our habits and our patterns. Listen to this quote, and I'll give you an example that will hopefully just drill it into you. Here's this quote from Dallas Willard. As we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is that our thoughts, we have that the first movements towards the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that fill the mind of Jesus himself. Spiritual formation in Christ moves toward a total interchange of our ideas and images for his. Okay? Now, that's the longer quote of the smaller one I shared with you earlier. Here's where this goes. Remember what we said earlier? The devil comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden, not with a stick and a sword, but with an idea. He comes at Eve with an idea. Now, how I want to use this metaphor is, the practice of judo. I don't do judo, but what the whole game is around practicing judo is using your enemy's energy against them, okay? So what you'll learn in judo is using your opponent, if your opponent moves and turns their energy towards you, how you can use that energy against them to immobilize them, 
to get them off balance. That is what the devil does to us. That is what the devil did to Eve. That is what the devil attempted to do to Jesus in the wilderness, is to take our own energy, our own desires, our own doubt, and use them against us. Okay? The energy that we're already moving towards in our habits and our patterns, he will manipulate and use to get us even further off track. For Paul, the greatest danger was hollow ideas. He mentioned it in Colossians. He's mentioned it a few other places. Um, it, check this out. We'll actually read this. Colossians 2. So then... Just as you received Christ as Lord, and I don't think this is on the screen, so don't keep looking for it. Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, one, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He mentions two things, human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Now, remember our conversation, I think it was last January, we talked about hard power and soft power. Hard power is like a military dictatorship regime like North Korea. North Korea is hard power. You do, if you live in North Korea, you do what they say. Okay? That's... That's hard power. Soft power is South Korea. South Korea has exported a whole bunch of culture through K-pop. Nobody? Come on. Some of you? No? So two, two cultures right next to each other bordered the, 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 the demilitarized zone. North Korea, hard, hard power. South Korea, soft power. Both have influence. Okay, listen, Hollywood is soft power. Some argue that Hollywood has more power to shape the world than many hard power military institutions. And the question we have to ask is what is soft power doing to us? See, remember when I said that the devil comes to Eve with an idea, he comes at, at, at Eve with the idea of questioning who God is what her identity is, and how the best flourishing life should be. It's soft power. He doesn't bite her. That would be hard power. <laughs> so let's talk about Russian troll farms. I mean, why not? What is happening in our world now is the weaponization of information. So we're seeing this on a huge scale. Countries that um, use um, attacks from within, they call it dirty warfare, asymmetrical warfare, attacks from within and from different angles on their people. And we've, we've heard recently of China and Russia and now Saudi Arabia and even some other groups using um, information warfare against each other and against the United States. Um, but here's the funny thing. Oh, it's actually not funny. Here's the interesting thing. We, as a country, have done this for years. Okay, so we get complained about all these other things that are happening to us. We've done this to the world for years. Okay, 
And if you want to have a bigger conversation about that, that's fine. But what they've realized in the last number of years is that what has been happening in our country through social media and the internet has been a constant barrage and a a constant um, method of getting us as American citizens to tribe up and fight each other. And this is an intentional thing that um, uh, Russian troll farms are all about. So it's been, it's been, I don't know if you're keeping up with this and, and trying to separate yourself this from politics and things like that. Russian troll farms have been linked to a number of Black Lives Matter websites and white supremacist websites. And they've found and they've traced, the FBI and, and different organizations have traced it all back to St. Petersburg. Now listen, there's also been pro-Islamic, listen to this one, pro-Islamic and anti-Islamic websites from St. Petersburg crafted on the same day and in the same place competing rallies in Texas. Okay? Now, did Russia create racism in America? (laughs) No, no. Uh, It's been here. But what they've done is they've taken that nascent anger, distrust, and injustice, and poured gasoline on it. And we fell for it. There's another, there's recently, actually it was about a year ago, there was a video that went viral. I read about this with some, some of this conversation. This video went viral about this woman who, on a subway, took a can of bleach and poured it on the lap of a man who was sitting there on the subway, minding his own business, and she made some statement about uh, the patriarchy and, and, <laughs> and down with the patriarchy and, and against men who sit on the subway and and have their legs open. It's called manspreading. <laughs> you didn't think you were going to hear about manspreading today at church, did you? What they found is that thing went viral, and there was all these comments, and, and men are the worst, and you know all this kind of stuff. And the whole goal was to pet, pit men and women against each other. You know where that came from? A Moscow subway. They hired an American actress to do this became a viral video in our world now is this about is this whole thing against russia no what i'm saying is the whole idea behind what they're doing is to create discord weaken the power of your enemy and the collective effect of a unified country And they take the nascent fears and insecurities and injustices and pain and use it to split people up. This is the metaphor that Paul is getting at. This is the idea that Paul is getting at. Don't give the devil a foothold. The devil will take what is already happening in your life. What fears and injustices and pain and anger and anxiety and insecurity you already have and manipulate it. 
And he'll manipulate it in a way that makes you distrust people, pull away from people, isolate from people, attack people out of anger, steal because you don't think you have enough, use your words as pain towards somebody else. Whatever your weaknesses are, he'll use a desire, a doubt in you, a wound in you, a concern in you and turn it into a fear. Some of the things I've learned about myself in the last number of years, about how I tend to um, want people to like me, and so I will do things and say things in order to keep them liking me. And it, it's been something that I've been working on really since about 2014. And Ben, who was standing up here, I remember it was a, probably about... I don't know, maybe six months ago, I said something just kind of offhand, and he's like, you're doing it again. <laughs> he's like, you're doing that thing where you care about what people think when you know what you're supposed to do is this. And I'm thankful for that. Where are your weaknesses? Where are my weaknesses? What happens when we just obsess with shopping because there's something deeper there? Or, there, or we binge on television and escape because there's something deeper going on there? Or Instagram gets us off track and this comparison thing and those weird insecurities, something deeper there? Or security, whether it's financial or, or health or whatever, there's something deeper there. All of us are bent and broken and corrupted, and we're entangled in just this web of distraction and um, things pulling at us. And here's the thing. Here's the newsflash for you. You may not be the best judge of your own weaknesses. You may think you do, but you may not. It's that whole Jahari window thing, and I, I can't go into explaining it at all uh, in a deep level, but the idea that there's things that you know about in yourself, there's things that you, uh, others know about in you that you don't know, there's things that you keep to yourself because they're in secret, and there's things that you don't even know about yourself. You just act out of this deep place, and you don't know what there comes from. Listen to this. This is Dallas Willard for the win. He says, the hidden dimension of each human life is not visible to others, nor is it fully graspable even by ourselves. We usually know very little about the things that move in our own soul, the deepest level of our life, or even what is driving it. Our within is astonishingly complex and subtle, even devious. It takes, a life, it takes on a life of its own. Only God knows our depths, who we are, and what we would do. So how do we figure out these entry points? Okay, how do we figure this stuff out? How do we see these entry points in our life, these little windows, these footholds, these little opportunities of influence? How do we find these places that are already there and could be used against us? Our own energy our own desires, our own anxieties. It's three things. I'm going to throw all of them up on the screen so you can just soak it in. These look new. <laughs> the scriptures. Listen. A lot of us read the scriptures to get information, to learn them. 
But I want to encourage you to begin to read the scriptures as if the scriptures are reading you. And, and many times in our lives, we just like, yeah, I've read that, or yes, I've studied that. And we have this mental checkbox that happens. But what happens if we were to read the scriptures and we put our lives actually under the authority of scripture, which is very difficult for us to do, because most of us, unless, you, unless you're really honest, are pretty anti-authoritarian. We read scriptures not for inspiration, like, ha. Ah, that really gave me a little pep for the day, or that's a tattoo idea. No, we read it, and we come under its authority in our lives. We read it because it reads us, and when it reads us, we begin to see those places, those little windows, those little places in our lives where the devil might be getting a foothold. Second is the Spirit of God, and these are really go in tandem with each other, con conjunction with each other. The Spirit of God comes alongside of the scriptures to unearth things in us. And this is really important. Uh, we read in verse 30 of this passage we've been looking at, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This idea that the Spirit of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, is in you, living in you, walking with you, and, and there's in our activities whether it be in our hearts, in our hands, in our mouths, we have the opportunity to actually make the Holy Spirit grieve. And the last one's the community of Jesus. And I'm going to say this again until I'm dead in the ground, taking a dirt nap. You cannot follow Jesus alone. If you think that you can click on a podcast and isolate yourself and go about your life, you're fooling yourself. You need people in your life. Here's why. Because it'll point out those places. Right? So what is Paul saying? These people are cruising around. He's like, don't get angry with each other. Don't steal. Like... How can you get angry with each other when you're just listening to a podcast and not interacting with them? No, these are the, th the, the things that actually like highlight, oh, there's something deeper there. Why did that tick me off? I got to figure out why that ticked me off. Why am I anxious right now? Where is that insecurity coming from in me? There's something deeper in there and you cannot figure it out without community. We, took a, we had this church survey you guys, some of you took it. Not all of you, some of you. You still can. 85% of us said, I am intimidated by having people know me well. <laughs> I mean, that's, I actually thought it would be more. Some of you are liars. 85% <laughs> of us, it's intimidating for people to know us. Like, here's the thing, like, you think... <laughs> I don't think you think, but because you know me, but listen, let's be honest. I'm a jerk <laughs> a lot of times. Like, I don't have this all figured out. I have things in me that are constantly getting figured out. Ask Angela. Listen, with trust of each other, if there's just like this, we should have this moment. When, whenever we're, we should come up with something, like whenever we're around each other, kind of like um, 
like a recovery group. No, I'm serious. Like when you, when you just can say, listen, my name's Ryan. Thank you. I don't have this figured out, and I'm pretty messed up. Yeah, me too. Well, let's, let's start from that place, right? Let's start from, I have insecurities. I have fears. I have anxieties. And, and to ask each other with the trust and the relational equity that we build with each other, we learn to allow each other to speak into our lives together, right? That's what we need. We need to ask ourselves, where am I giving the devil a foothold? Where am I giving opportunity, okay, for something to pull me away from the life that Jesus has on offer. So this morning, I have two practices for us, but I'm not going to share those with you yet. We're going to talk about that at the end. This morning, we're going to come to communion. And we're going to come to communion together as a community realizing that our our brokenness is actually not just our own. Jesus actually sits with his community and he breaks bread with them and he does it in a way that he invites them into something bigger. He invites them into what it looks like to consume the life of God and that he's about to go to the cross, he's going to the cross knowing full well what that means and at a Passover meal, he takes the bread and he breaks it right in front of his his disciples and he says, this is my body broken for you. I love you this much and I want you to have the kind of life Okay? that I intended for you to have. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to break myself. I'm going to willingly be broken so that you could have life. And he does the same thing with the cup. And he passed an extra cup that day. It was a different setup than a normal Passover meal. And he passed the cup to his disciples, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And whenever you come and you do this together as a community, do it in remembrance of that. Remember that I I come to lay my life down that you might have life and life to the full. That the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. And I've come for life. And so we come today as a community that says, I am actively with my whole person, with my body, with my behavior, with my mind and my heart, coming to the table and participating in the life Jesus has on offer.